stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's an honor to welcome Dr. Ruben Nyman, author of Hush, a book of bedtime contemplations, and Ruben can be found at drnyman.com. Ruben, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on the show. I reached out and we touched base about the importance of sleep from, from an entrepreneurial and an innovative perspective, because I really saw a lot of your work and you were talking about dream deprivation, etc., which we'll touch on. But I was thinking that sleep is such a, an important part of the mix for an entrepreneur or any type of business person that it's often overlooked and, and it's also of, often worn as a badge of honor almost to not sleep so much and people kind of going oh i worked a 20-hour day and, and i'd love to just open that conversation up uh, ruben if you would just tell our audience about yourself well i'm i'm a clinical psychologist I've had a, a long-standing interest in, in sleep and dreams. It probably goes back to my childhood, certainly to my adolescence. Uh, I became interested in consciousness. Uh, it's a very, very slippery notion when I was a kid, and still it's my primary interest. Um, with, with regard to sleep, I was originally trained as a Jungian-oriented dream therapist and did that for many years. Um, I got very interested in dreaming uh, as it was associated with cancer and uh, worked with a lot of cancer patients on their dreams. And uh, that eventually led me into uh, a deeper focus on sleep. It's, it's virtually impossible to segregate sleep and dreams as, as much as we try to in our lives and, and even professionally. That led me um, back to Arizona where I had gone to school and, and I opened a sleep clinic, a sleep center at a facility here called Canyon Ranch. Uh, it, it's a world-renowned health spa and uh, ran that for about a dozen years. So the reason I bring that up is I had an opportunity to, to look at and study sleep and uh, treat sleep clinically, work with people with their sleep concerns um, in an alternative health setting. Uh, and this is always something that's drawn me. I, I think our conventional, the sort of standard medical approach to sleep uh, is 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 absolutely essential, but it's also insufficient. It, it just doesn't really completely help us understand sleep, uh, nor does it offer solutions to to the most serious sleep problems in in an effective way. So my work um, for the past twenty five, close to thirty years, has been focused on alternative, complementary, and alternative approaches. What we call integrative medicine approaches to sleep and dreams. Um, one of the best known physicians in the United States, uh, Dr. Andrew Weil, uh, is the director of the department I work in. It's the Center for Integrative Medicine. Um, we have um, teaching programs now that reach out to over 50 medical schools, um, teaching this approach that encourages a, a scientifically-based integration a bringing together of the best of, of, that science has to offer, along with um, alternative approaches, which include a focus on nutrition, um, a, a focus on activity or exercise, uh, and a very critical focus on, on what we call body-mind factors, the influence of 
of the mind, the brain on sleep. And lastly, uh, in my work, I would say as important as all of this, and this again is a slippery term, is considering the spiritual dimensions of sleep. Sleep is not simply a mechanical process. Um, in fact, the brain does not sleep. We can study reflections of sleep in the brain. But when it comes right down to it, we sleep. It's, it's a human experience. And as important as understanding the physiology, the medicine, the objective science of sleep, it's equally important to really understand and come to terms with our personal relationship with sleep. I saw one thing that you wrote, and it's about REM, so rapid eye movement stage of sleep, is actually like shutting down the computer to give it, to allow it to reboot or, or allow it to refresh in a way. Mm -hmm. Could we touch yes. on that? Because that that's often a lot of us don't allow ourselves get to that stage or into that deeper element of sleep, and maybe to give our, our audience an idea of what, what that is as well, what REM is. The, the relationship of sleep to dreams is a little bit like the relationship of water to food. We need both. Our REM stands for rapid eye movement, and it refers to that time uh, during the sleep cycle. It's a repeated period uh, during which our dreaming becomes most evident. Um, in summary, we do most of our deep sleep in the first third of the night, uh, and we do most of our dream or REM sleep in the latter third of the night. Um, my, my greatest concern today in, in, in my professional work, and in, in my life actually, um, is, is that there's strong evidence that we are, we meaning the Western world, we are at least as dream deprived as we are sleep deprived. Uh, there's, there's strong reason to believe that we're actually losing more dream time than we are losing sleep time. And dreaming is critical in so many ways. Um, we, we know that it supports creativity. Uh, as important, we know that dreaming is strongly associated with memory formation. People who don't dream well don't learn well. They, they, they don't uh, take to heart, if you will, the things that they've, they've studied, um, been exposed to during the day. In fact, what goes on in REM sleep um, is parallel to what goes on in our digestive system. You might know in recent years, there's been a trend toward looking at the, the belly, at, at the, the digestive process as a second brain. It's called the second brain. The reason for this is we've discovered that many of the neurotransmitters that operate in the central nervous system in the brain are present in our gut. And, and it makes sense that, that y your belly needs to have a certain kind of intelligence because we ship all kinds of material to it. You know, we send all kinds of stuff down there, some of it nourishing and healthy, some of it questionable. And then the gut has to make decisions about everything it will keep, uh, what it will filter through, and what it will excrete. And this is simple, but these are very critical decisions about what the gut will decide to make a part of the self. You know, it's going to keep th these nourishing elements. It's going to sift through and excrete these other elements. What, it, what the gut keeps literally becomes a part of us, our energy system and, and even our physicality. Now, the brain during REM sleep does something very similar. What it does is it, it metaphorically chews on 
it swallows, it digests all of the experiences that we've consumed during that waking day. So what I mean by that is in an average day, we're exposed to a lot of information, a lot of encounters, a lot of thoughts, things we read and see and hear and taste and smell. All of those billions of bits, if you will, of information are kind of stacked in there. And at night during REM sleep, the brain, we might say the mind, the spirit decides of everything we've been exposed to, what it will keep and what it will sift, uh, filter out. When I say what it will keep, um, what that means is that the brain decides what it will consolidate as memory. So in essence, during REM sleep, uh, we are remade. You know, we, we incorporate this, these new experiences. They get placed, they get integrated within our being. When REM sleep fails, when we don't get sufficient quantity or quality of REM sleep, it's a little bit like a psychological constipation. So we're taking in all this information, but we're not digesting it. We're taking in all these experiences, but we're not processing them. And what, what's been fascinating for me uh, for, for 20 years is we know that clinical depression, people who are clinically depressed, have damaged REM sleep. And it, I, I've believed for a long time that um, the way to heal depression is about healing or dreaming. That, that, that healthy dreaming, just as often in healing an illness in the body, we want to, we want to heal our digestion so that we can, uh, we can assimilate healthy nourishment to build our immune system and so on. We need to heal our dreaming process to heal our minds. That's really interesting. When I was just thinking how you know, we're moving towards a knowledge-based economy, so we're moving away from agriculture and manufacturing, and that's been done more and more by artificial intelligence and automation. And if we're moving towards a knowledge-based economy, we're, we're calling on our brains a hell of a lot more than we ever did before, but yet we're living a very Western life in that. I remember reading about Eastern philosophies that the Western man, looking back on the Western man, goes, the Western man spends all his time making money and accumulating wealth and then retires and then spends all his money on his health because he's done such damage to himself over that period of time. And when I read your work and and saw the great content on your website, I was like, this is a huge problem. This is an epidemic that's going through the world. And then in typical Western ways, we we go to the cheat mode. So, for example, people want to lose weight. They take pills. They don't actually go to the gym and change their lifestyle. We do the same with sleep. We reach out for wine, sleeping pills. We Some people reach out for marijuana. We, we actually, instead of actually fixing the root of the problem, we try to cover up the cracks with a new lick of paint. And I'd love some, some touch points for our audience, Ruben, if you would, on how to fix that and some, some tips, you know, to get there. Yeah. You know, when, when it comes to um, creating healthy sleep and dreams, um, essentially, we're, we're looking at undamming a river. Uh, the body, the mind, the spirit wants to sleep. It wants to dream. We don't need to force that. We need to look into our lives, into our minds, into our lifestyles. 
We need to look at our environment and determine what it, what is blocking, what is inadvertently damming up the natural flow of sleep. So let me touch on sleep and then I'll touch on dreaming. Um, there are two essential parts to healing our sleep. One of them is environmental and the other one is psychological or psycho-spiritual. So environmentally, um, we human beings over the past 10,000 years or so have moved indoors. We used to live outside. Uh, there's a great story in Australia where the government created a housing project for the Aboriginal population there. And um, uh, this is a population that was accustomed to, to living uh, in, out, out in the world. And uh, so they put them in these homes and, and what they did was they moved into and lived in the backyard. They really, they really couldn't stand being cooped up. We're so accustomed to it. But, but this is what I, what I call excessive domestication. So most of us spend much too much time indoors. Indoors, we have poor lighting during the day. We have a flat temperature rhythm, which is very different than what we get outside. And we're not exposed to the natural circadian energies of light and dark, of, of dusk and dawn. That has a profound effect on our biology and our psychology. Um, one of the very best treatments that we have for insomnia, for, for people who can't fall asleep or stay asleep, is actually a simple treatment. It involves sending them to the country, sending people on camping trips for a week. Uh, but the, the, the caveat there is we need to surgically extract their electronic devices and this is the difficult part is taking you know um, all the, uh, taking all the phones and things away from people so what happens then is of course people are exposed to the natural rhythms um, of, of light and darkness um, in the US we um, we in recent years we've coined a term called nature deficit disorder and so environmentally nature deficit disorder is what contributes to poor sleep Psychologically, uh, there's a whole other critical piece to this. Um, there's a beautiful poem by uh, an American poet uh, named Mary Oliver called Sleeping in the Forest. And it's an exquisite poem that captures the, the, the psychological and spiritual essence of sleep. There's that image, too, of sleeping in the forest, on the ground. I'm not suggesting that everybody needs to do this, but uh, we do need to reinstate some of the qualities of that natural environment. But she also talks about uh, falling asleep and rising and falling. She says, all night I rose and I fell. And... Um, when we look at the psychology of going to sleep, there are two parts to it. One is we, we need to essentially submit the body to bed. The, the word bed in English etymologically is linked to the word garden bed, which is very interesting. Again, it takes us back to this notion of the ground, of being grounded. So the body essentially metaphorically needs to go down. It needs to submit to gravity. We need to let the body go. Um, the difficulty with that in our world today is that so many of us are suffering from a condition we call hyperarousal. Hyperarousal um, essentially suggests that, that the level of our waking is too high pitched. And most of us know that when we go to sleep, 
we go through layers of sleep. We go through deeper and deeper layers or deeper levels, the stage one, stage two, stage three, and so on. But we forget that we can also be awake at different levels. And we measure this with EEG, with electroencephalography. So we can be in, in, in relaxed waking, which is alpha. We can be in low beta, which is waking somewhat energized. But many people are in mid to high range beta, they're essentially buzzing. This is a buzzing brain. You see this in the world where people are walking fast, talking fast, thinking fast, pushing through their lives. So that kind of velocity and acceleration makes it very hard to settle down at night. The antidote to that, and we put the body down, the antidote to that, to hyperarousal, is pretty simple. It is humility. It's humility. Hyperarousal is a kind of cognitive arrogance. And in fact, the word humility comes from the English word humus, which again takes us back to the earth. There has to be this, this willingness to surrender our being to the bed, to the garden bed, to the earth, to let ourselves go down. When that happens, when the body goes down, if you will, when our physicality goes down, the mind rises. Now, in many traditions, both Western and Eastern, there's a common notion that when we go to sleep, the soul leaves the body. We can use a lot of different language about this, but, but again, metaphorically, as the body goes down, the, the spirit, if you will, rises. And this takes us into REM sleep. This takes us into the dream. Now, how do we heal our dreams? Um, essentially, it's about undamming the river of dreams. What interferes with dreaming is so common in our lifestyle. Excessive alcohol consumption interferes with REM sleep. Many commonly used medications, many psychiatric medications, most antidepressants, most anti-anxiety agents significantly interfere with REM sleep. A lot of sleeping pills, ironically, interfere with REM sleep. There's a category of drugs we call anticholinergics, um, most commonly used for allergies, for example. They interfere with REM sleep. And when you add to that, that uh, so many people have sleep apnea, where they, they can't get into deeper REM sleep because of an obstruction of their breathing, and then many, many more people have what we call middle insomnia, where they're waking up in the middle of the night and they can't get back to sleep. Those folks are not losing sleep, they're losing dreams. It's reminiscent of um, Shakespeare's Hamlet and, and the line about uh, to sleep perchance to dream. A lot of people, I believe, awaken because they're not comfortable in what goes on in that dream world. So we, we have to be willing to look at what blocks our dreams and, and really address those dream thieves. As importantly, we have to be willing to reconnect with the dreaming self. Uh, I believe that, that our identity, our waking self-identity, is a, is a critical but actually very limited part of who we are. I think there's so much more that makes us up that is really difficult to, to capture or contain in the space of waking consciousness. Most highly creative people um, most artists I've worked with, musicians, uh, dancers, really creative people, find a, a very personal way of tapping into this larger consciousness. And so what we call the dream at night can actually be present during the day. Um, 
Uh, it's interesting. We have a lot of research in which we, we study the way people perceive in their dreams. And I've written about this. I call this dream eyes. Dream eyes, for example, are non-judgmental. Uh, we can look at anything with dream eyes and uh, we accept it. When we wake up and we look back at the dream with waking world eyes, we frequently will react with, oh my God, that's so weird. But the more we dream, the more we exercise those dream eyes, the more we are able to use them in waking life. And uh, the evidence suggests that that makes us more creative. It also opens our heart to a more spiritual life. Now, this is independent of religion. Um, what it does is, is it creates, a, it opens a door to a direct relationship with mystery, which most of us screen out in our daily lives. I remember reading about the great David Bohm, and he used to go into a, basically a silent room and focus on a problem and, and, well, focus on a solution for a problem that he identified. And it got me thinking that, you know, you hear that this can be done in sleep, but you also you have to, obviously you have to do what you said here and create the right conditions for that sleep. But like to get a little bit deeper, how can, how can we do that? Because so many people have problems or, you know, they want to implant affirmations before they go asleep. What's your, th what's your thoughts on those kind of things? It, it, it's an interesting question. Um, we live in a world where there's a, a widespread, um, pretty rigid presumption that sleep, uh, sleep and dreams are, are essentially functional. And we opened our conversation with talking about how, how important sleep is in the world of productivity, in the world of business, and so on. And it's absolutely true. Um, but again, there's a presumption that the only reason we sleep is to make us better waking people. Now that might sound strange as, as uh, you hear me say that, um, but th this is where we're, you know, we're, we're encouraged to sleep by professionals because it will make us, um, it, it'll give us more energy during the day. It will improve our immune systems. It will improve our memory. Uh, it will improve our productivity. It will improve our, our athletic performance. It goes on and on and on. In fact, all, you know, every time we ask sleep a research question like sleep, can you help with immunity? It answers in the affirmative. So we know sleep is sleep supports waking life, but the assumption that the only reason we sleep is to be better waking people, I believe, is misguided. Um, th there, there's really interesting um, literature that goes back thousands of years. Uh, out of Eastern traditions, uh, out of Hindu yogic traditions, Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, there are Western writings about this, uh, notably Rudolf Steiner. Uh, there, there's a lot of writing that suggests that, that sleep is not just a servant of waking life, that in, in our deepest sleep, we actually access our deepest self. It's a spiritual rendezvous, if you will. It's a return home. There's an old, uh, a beautiful Beatles song uh, from the early 70s called Golden Slumbers. Uh, it's a lullaby written originally by Thomas Decker 300 years before. And, and the lyric runs, once there was a way to get back home, once there was a way to get back home, sleep pretty darling. So it was understood historically that sleep was not just necessary to make us better waking people, that it really wasn't also an end in and of itself we can begin to look at sleep as part of a spiritual 
path of spiritual pursuit. Yeah, because we're, we're way more holistic, or we aim to be in this world. There's a, certainly a huge shift in humanity. It may appear like dissatisfaction with the way things were, and we came out of the agrarian and the industrial ages, and now we're coming into a more place where we're actually questioning things. And I just think, I mean, your work is of its time now, and we see the rise of, of wellness and the rise of uh, um, mindfulness and, and so many elements and Reiki and, you know, holistic treatments are now actually yes. being preferred over medical treatment. As a compliment, not, not in lieu of. Not in lieu of, yeah, yeah compliment to medical treatment yes but it's like what you said we are nature deprived i leave my house every day i go to the gym first thing in the morning i get up at 6 a.m and i hear the birds singing i, I actually always think to myself that is nature's alarm clock that dawn chorus is yes. actually the time everybody should be up but, but what we do instead is we sleep through that then we sit in traffic for an hour or more and then, and then the other end of the day like when my kids go to bed at like seven thirty-eight, is the, the birds are almost saying goodnight at that time as well and it's like this natural yeah. that's the time we should be operating in those are the two two really most profound times a day if you're looking just at the world um these are hemispheric changes that occur during dusk and dawn and i imagine um it's similar uh, there as it is here um most people in in, in my world um, experience what we call rush hour during dusk and dawn. When these, these remarkable transitions happening in light, um, people are in a hurry to get up and get going and get their kids to school and go to work. When the sun is setting, likewise, they're returning home and they're in a hurry. If I, if I could put in a plug, uh, I actually, uh, I teach in Europe every summer. Um, uh, I, I teach at three yoga centers, uh, one in France, one in Germany, and uh, one in Austria. The, the Germany center is in Munich, but the, the center in France and the center in Austria are uh, in beautiful, beautiful natural locations. So uh, these are listed on my website if people are interested. Of course, there's so much more to this sleep story and, and healing sleep, but if folks are interested in that, they can find those retreats on my website. In France? It's, it's near Orléans, in a, a beautiful uh, natural forested area, and they're early on. May I touch on something, Ruben, as well? You know, you have children, the children wake up during the night, and people are absolutely sleep-deprived. So the pattern is usually you get married, a couple of years later you might have children. If you have two children, one or the other, you end up going into a different bed every night, and basically you're dream-deprived, but you're also sleep-deprived. And I wanted to ask you about that. Like, So staying in the same bed as your partner has to have a positive effect on your relationship, going, getting into the more spiritual side of things. Yes. You know, historically, we had, in the Western world, we had what was called the family bed. It's just been relatively recent times that, that people created separate bedrooms and, and what we call solo sleep. Um, the anthropological evidence suggests that we're actually meant to sleep socially, that sleep is a social event. But here's the thing. Um, we have been unnecessarily frightened about awakening. So let me say this carefully. The problem is not waking up at night. The problem is getting back to sleep. It's actually perfectly normal to wake up during the night, even a few times. It's perfectly normal. Maybe we get up and use the restroom or we wake up and, and uh, you know, we turn over, pull the covers, or we wake up with a child. 
Uh, mothers in particular have been, become so frightened. Uh, unfortunately, um, there's really strong evidence that women are biologically programmed to get significantly more deep sleep than men, which means mother nature anticipated uh, a woman struggling with sleep during pregnancy, um, around childbirth and early childhood. Um, by the way, in my field, we consider pregnancy a sleep disorder. It's just really difficult to sleep with, you know, with that sure. in your belly. Sure. But, but it, tur it turns out that, again, Mother Nature anticipated it. Women needn't be frightened. A, a woman can go for a stretch of time with relatively light sleep. In fact, we believe that, that uh, Mother Nature expects the mother to be tuned into the child. We talk about mother's ear, you know, uh, to be able to listen, to hear, even get a sense of the baby intuitively. So um, it needn't be a problem. Uh, again, and, and uh, children will often self-regulate. They will, uh, at some point, if you have a family bed, they will let you know when they're ready to sleep alone. And it may be moving onto a mattress uh, away from the bed, or it might be moving into another room. So I think we've lost touch with that. Years ago, there was a, a strong, um, unnecessary move, in my opinion, to encourage mothers and fathers to put babies uh, in a separate room. Uh, I think there's a there's there's some interesting history to that, but. Um, it, it needn't be a problem if if uh, if you're waking up at night. Uh, there's, there's no need to fall into a judgment of that, which people do. They wake up and they go, oh, damn, I'm up. I'm not going to sleep. This is terrible. What wakes us up is not typically what keeps us up. What keeps us up is our psychological reaction, our negative judgment of the awakening. And if we can let go of that and not judge the awakening, it's fine to get up at night, bits here and there. But to get back to sleep is what we want to aim for. So people reach out, obviously, for sleep aids, valerian, melatonin, for example. What, what's your view on that? So sleep aids, um, by the way, the, the physician I work with, doc, Dr. Andrew Weil, just last week published a, a new book. He has many books out. It's called Mind Over Meds. And there's a chapter in that book that I, I helped him with uh, on, on sleep aids. It's called Sleep Aids. So we're talking about a whole range of things from uh, pres pres very strong prescription medications all the way down to herbs or botanicals and melatonin. So it's complex. Generally speaking, sleeping pills prescription and over-the-counter conventional sleeping pills, in my opinion, are not a good idea. Um, having said that, I, I think there are good alternatives um, and I do believe melatonin can be very useful, but it's widely misunderstood. Uh, most of the products on the market, in my opinion, are useless. The way that they're formulated, the dosage is too high, and most of them are instant release, which means they will spike up in your blood and brain at the beginning of the night and then quiet. Uh, if someone's going to take melatonin, by the way, I, I don't know if it's available over the counter in Ireland. No, it's, pre it's prescription, but but prescription. I've, he I've heard of a lot of children being given melatonin to help them, Not for example. Yet. Right. So w with children, there's some evidence that melatonin might help autistic children, but I would uh, work closely with a knowledgeable pediatrician before doing that. Uh, but melatonin can be very helpful with adults. Most of us in our world are so overexposed to light at night that it's been whipping the pineal gland, also known as the third eye, 
the pineal gland which produces, naturally produces melatonin. So we see a reduction in melatonin over time. Uh, I'll share with you, I, I, um, I'm 67 years old. I have been taking a small dose of melatonin nightly for 27 years. And I don't do it because I, I have sleep concerns. I sleep quite well. I do it because I think, like everyone else in my world, I'm overexposed to light at night as much as I try to, to modulate that. And so I take it. I also take other vitamins and supplements. Um, that's my, my personal decision. But I think if someone wants to consider melatonin, they need to get informed. Unfortunately, a lot of physicians don't understand it. There is a prescription form of melatonin available in Europe. Um, my opinion is that it's problematic because it's not time-released. We need a time-released or sustained-released formulation. They are available over-the-counter in the U.S. Yeah, so, so the screens, Ruben, as well, we're all checking our phone and checking Facebook and all these kind of things, ju oftentimes just before we go to bed. Well, there, there are two problems with it. One is the, the light that comes out of screens has a, a strong blue wavelength, and that's specifically the kind of light that sends a message through the eye to the pineal to tell it to shut down melatonin production. So even little bits of the, that kind of light. The second is it tends to excite us. Um, who was it? Pascal once said, uh, um, there's nothing more frightening to men than to, to be alone in a room. And, and this is part of the transition to sleep. No matter what we're doing, we need to be willing to be with ourselves. And uh, if we've not spent time with ourselves during the day and we have a, a backup, if you will, a buildup of um, thoughts and feelings and encounters and experiences and emotions that we have in process, then all of that stuff will, will just show up the moment we turn out the last lamp on the bedstand. So people keep trying to keep their brains busy and, and it backfires. Um, so I think dialing down the light, tuning the lights down at night, an hour or two before bed. In fact, there's now a, a, a wonderful technology. You can buy light bulbs that are called low blue lights. And uh, I have these in my bedroom and bathroom. So I can turn on the lights, but the brain doesn't read it as light. It actually reads it as darkness. Wow. It won't suppress melatonin. I'm not sure if these products are available in Europe. I'd be surprised if they're not. Yeah, that's but fantastic. These on the web, yeah. That's yeah. fantastic advice. And and last po point is consciousness, because you mentioned this, and, <laughs> and I'm a huge believer also in this, and almost accessing a collective consciousness. When you get control of your mind in a certain way, that you can yeah. access a, a higher consciousness or a, or a collective consciousness, if you will. Would yes. you mind expanding on that? Because I know I know it's it's a lot of your work as well. Yeah. So you know, um, it's when you think about it, it's odd that, that virtually all of us refer to us ourselves with the same word. I call myself I. You call yourself I. Listeners, we all call ourselves I. And for most of us, the part of us that we call I is the waking self. It's just one small part of consciousness. It's usually associated with the ego. So from a sleep perspective, the part of me that I call I is incapable of sleep. It's the waking self. It's incapable of sleep. It, it can walk me to the edge of the waters of sleep, but it can't swim. We need to learn to let go of that. When we do, and, and this is part of the natural 
expansive process of both sleeping and dreaming, our sense of self is very different. This is why dreams can seem so weird. I can be me in the dream. I can be you. I, I can I can be watching myself in the dream. I can be other people. So our, our identity can expand in the dream. We live in a world where we have segregated, separated and segregated sleeping and dreaming and waking. These are the three primary forms of consciousness. We keep them very separate. What happens in, I believe, healthy life, healthy sleep and dreams is they begin to come together. We begin to experience elements of the dream world when we're awake. We begin to open our hearts and minds to this expansive consciousness. So the better we dream at night, the more we can be dreamy in a positive sense during the day. But as importantly, we can actually begin to feel elements of sleep during the day. And, and that shows up as a, a beautiful, subtle, but powerful sense of serenity. Uh, sleep, in my opinion, deep sleep is identical to what spiritual teachers have been speaking about for eons. Deep sleep is inner peace. It's given to us by grace if we're willing to go there every night. So when we reconnect with these states of consciousness and we reintegrate them, I call this the United States of Consciousness. Oh, uh, it's, oh. it's not about pulling them together. It's about recognizing the ways in which we unconsciously segregate them. So we, we begin to experience a whole new way of being. The sense of self, the sense of I now includes. It's just bigger, it's broader. Uh, it doesn't define oneself uh, in contrast to others. There's a beautiful line in the Hindu scriptures that says, wherever there is other, there is fear. So there's less fear in life when we allow elements of sleeping and dreaming to, 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 be, to imbue, um, to penetrate into our waking day. And this is, this is in my mind, whole consciousness. Yeah, and that has to lead to better creativity because people, companies are craving creative people, different thinkers. They need to almost be allowed time to regenerate their thoughts because if you're a very mental intensive person and maybe work very much on creativity or even strategy you need almost time to regenerate that brain power and put it back in and, and one last thing is power naps because i know people are going to go i wish you asked about power naps because you read a lot of stuff about this and you know all right. the the big tech giants have chill out rooms and for yes, which, yes. which barely anybody ever uses but but they're there anyway <laughs> it could actually lead to better productivity there's no question there's research on this um Napping is very natural. Uh, in fact, all mammals are programmed to nap. Whether we've had a good night's sleep or not, there's an interesting circadian drop in body temperature, core body temperature, that happens in the middle of our waking day, for most of us around 2 o'clock, give or take. And uh, when the core body temperature drops, we're, we're pulled into sleep. And again, this is independent of how much we slept that night or the night before. Um, so napping is healthy. It reduces blood pressure. Um, it it, uh, it increases productivity. The uh, Yogi Berra, who was was a, a well known um, American uh, baseball player, um, who had a, an, an incredible sense of humor, he used to say, "I take a two hour nap every day from one to five. <laughs> nice. And what that did, it, it highlighted something else. I, I do think that one of the great benefits, unspoken benefits of napping, and a benefit of good sleep and good dreaming is it improves your sense of humor. 
Now, maybe that's associated with creativity, that lightheartedness, that expansiveness, that, that vulnerability to life, that openness, I think is very, very critical. And by the way, um, we, we believe the best nap doesn't run two hours. An ideal nap time is approximately 20 minutes situated approximately in the middle of your waking day. Yeah, because and one last thing. So people, people have often said to me, oh, well, the way you do a power nap is you have an espresso. And then you go for 20 minutes because it takes 20 minutes for the espresso to kick in and it'll wake yeah. you up. Yes, it's true. It's, it's true. true, is it? Okay, wow. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's espresso coffee is a whole other topic. Um, again, it's, it's, it's never as simple as we'd like it to be. But there's nothing wrong with drinking coffee if you drink the right amount at the right time. It can be a huge problem if you're drinking too much at the wrong time. And, and wine, for example, Ruben. So people think, oh, I go home after a hard days of work, I'll have a wine, but they often have half a bottle. What's your thoughts on that one? Right. Well, there, there's clear research on this. First of all, women metabolize alcohol at about half the efficiency that men do. So um, if she's having a glass of wine, it's the equivalent of his having two glasses of wine. Now, there's individual variation, but alcohol uh, ideally is taken earlier and absolutely with food. Um, people who take a nightcap or drink excessively later into the evening and closer to bedtime, there's no question that that will help them fall asleep, but shortly afterwards it will compromise the quality of their sleep, and even more so, it will wreck their dreaming. Wow, brilliant. So I'm not a teetotaler. I think a glass of wine is fine, but one has to be, uh, uh, one has to be moderate in the use of alcohol. Brilliant. Well, Ruben, it's been a, an absolute pleasure talking to you. And people can find out the information about your camps in um, Europe on the website, drnaiman.com. D-R-N-A-I-M-A-N.com. If you Google my first name, R-U-B-I-N, and the word sleep, uh, it'll take you to my website. Well, I'm going li to link to all the information on your book, Hush, as well, which is uh, fantastic. And there's, there's some great material on your site about all a lot of the topics and deeper into some of them. Dr. Ruben Nyman, thank you for joining us. Great. Thank you very much. It, it's a pleasure.